When we are in suffering, it's easy to feel discouraged, to have doubts, and to feel like we might even want to give up on our spiritual walk with God. We've been looking at Peter's words the last few weeks about suffering, and we realize the difficulty we have in front of us as we discuss suffering. This suffering is hard, it's difficult to endure, and we have to figure out how do we get through suffering? How do we make it through and endure it? How does a church survive when a pastor commits extreme sin and wounds the church? How does a family make it through the death of a child? How does a single adult survive the loss of their job and their sole way of making an income? How does a marriage endure infertility year after year? And even if we're not the one in suffering, we have to figure out how do we help those that we know are going through suffering? What do we say to them to help them? What do we do for them to assist them? What's our role as we try to help people in their suffering? How do we be a, a help but not an hindrance to people in suffering? As Peter has been talking about our life and suffering the last few weeks, I want to summarize a few of the things he's, he's described for us in one sentence for, for each of these sections, each of these teaching blocks that Peter has on suffering. In chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, he says, A faithful life lived as a Christian leads to slander and suffering, but that slander and suffering gives us an opportunity to point people to Christ. Then in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, he tells us that suffering occurs in our lives just like Christ experienced suffering. So we should expect it, prepare for it, proclaim Christ in it, and expect ultimate vindication from it. And last week in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Peter told us that when we walk away from our old sinful life and we begin to walk with God, the people that we used to walk with will cause us persecution and suffering. And here today, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, he transitions from describing people that have died in verse 6, people that probably experienced persecution because of their faith and maybe even martyrdom because of their faith. He transitions from that and tells us how to live right now tells the people that are still alive that haven't died how to live through the suffering they might be experiencing. He essentially tells them that in times of crisis, in times of suffering, the church, the body, the believers, they need each other, and they need to serve and help one another. He, he says a church body needs sound minds and steadfast action, along with spoken words to each other. And here we're going to see today, if you have an outline there in front of us, he gives them the motivation for their actions in verse 7. Then he describes this ministry that the church should have amongst themselves and, and strangers in 7 through 11. And then lastly, he gives this mark, this goal that they should be shooting for. What should result when they do these things? And he describes our motivation as believers living right now in verse 7, the first half of verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. This describes our incentive as believers that are still alive. When he says, the, all, the end of all things is near, that word for near is used to describe the coming of Jesus and his kingdom. 
It refers to Christ's second coming and what we know as the doctrine of imminency. The doctrine of imminency is this, that we as evangelical Christians, we believe that Christ could come back at any moment. So we are supposed to be ready. And the doctrine of imminency was a common teaching among the New Testament writers. Paul talks about it in Romans 13, 11. The author of Hebrews, whether a he or she, talks about it in Hebrews 9, 28. John the Apostle describes it in 1 John 2, 18. And James writes about it in James 5, 8. Every New Testament writer, except for Jude, describes imminency. Jude's only one chapter, so we'll give him a slide since he doesn't talk about it. But all the other New Testament writers from Romans through Revelation, every New Testament author describes the doctrine of imminency some, at some point in their letters that we have. See, the important thing that we need to remember is we're always remem- reminded that Christ could return at any moment is that it has ethical implications for us. The fact that Jesus could return at any moment dictates and and causes us to live and act in a certain way. The 20th century theologian John Walvoord comments on this verse. He says, The fact that life will not go on forever should be an encouragement to Christians who are going through deep trouble. A Christian's pilgrimage on earth is temporary and soon may be cut short by the rapture of the church, he says. This should serve as a stimulus to faithful service and enduring where persecutions and trials may be the lot of individual Christians. The anticipation of of Jesus' sudden and unknown date of his arrival should affect our attitudes and our actions. Sometimes when we hear about the end times or imminency of Christ coming back, we, we have images that come to our mind of people that stand on street corners with big signs, you know, screaming at people. Maybe we think about people that quit their jobs and they move to the mountains and they prepare for Jesus' arrival. Or maybe we even think about TV preachers that try to scare people with the different marks of the beast and use fear and tactics like that to sell their books or promote their ministries. But when Peter references the return of Christ, how it could come at any moment, he has a different approach. We'll see in verses 7 through 11 how he gives practical exhortations and prudent warnings for believers for what they're supposed to do. And he describes a ministry they should have beginning halfway through verse 7 through Uh, the first half of verse 11. 7 reads, Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Beginning in this section here, Peter gives us a ministry that we should have as believers in the middle of suffering. He gives us instruction and application for what we're supposed to do as a body when we're going through difficult times. And he starts by describing a whole and well mind that we should have here in verse 7. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit, he tells them. Now the context is suffering, as I've tried to show us, but the, the nearer context is the fact that the end is near, that Jesus could come back at any moment. And I think what he's saying is this, don't freak out when suffering 
comes. Don't lose your brain when suffering comes, when you think about the return of Christ. He's telling us when Charlie Brown Christmas is taken off public television, that's not a sign of the end times. You know, just because the gospel isn't being shown on public TV. He's saying when, when there was no quarters or pennies during the COVID pandemic, that's not a conspiracy by the government to move us to a cashless society. He's saying use sober judgment, stay grounded. He's telling us we should stay grounded and use sound judgment. That we're not supposed to be swept away by our emotions or our passions, that we shouldn't be setting dates for when we think Jesus should be coming back or looking at every little news headline and trying to reconcile that with biblical prophecy. There might be things we don't understand in Scripture, and we might be confused, but we stay grounded and we focus on God and we trust Him and we love Him. Frank and Ernest has a cartoon I clipped months ago. They're in the personnel office, and, and Ernest is getting hired, and Frank says, How soon can you start work? Ernest replies, that depends on how many distractions there are in the office that morning. See, as believers, we're supposed to be staying at the task at hand. Even though Jesus could come back at any moment, we focus on living rightly to follow him, and we focus on sharing the gospel with others before he comes back. We're supposed to be ready for him to come at any moment, but also making plans for what life would look like for us even if he doesn't come tomorrow or next week or next month. So under this ministry that Peter tells us we should have, he describes for them to have a whole and a well mind, but they also should have a warm heart in verse 8. He says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. And Peter begins there with that phrase, above all, almost as if he's saying that Old Testament law that has 613 laws in it, all those things that Jesus taught, over those things you've heard described, above all those things, show love to other people. And love is important, especially in the end times, because Jesus said in Matthew 24 that during the end times and as Jesus was going to come back, that people's love for each other will grow cold in those last days. And Paul wrote to Timothy and said in the last days, just before Jesus returns, that people will be lovers of self. They'll lack love. So Peter here loosely paraphrases Proverbs 10:12, saying that their love should cover other people's sins. And he tells them to do that by, he says, keep fervent. It's a word that's only used two times in the entire Bible, keep fervent. And it's described this way. It, it means being persevering with implication that one does not waver in one's display of interest or devotion. Often translated as eager or earnest. It's picturing a horse at full gallop that doesn't stop until it reaches the finish line or a racer, a runner, stretching the cross that line. He's telling us that we need to continue to love one another. Now, love is easy when life is easy, but love gets hard when life gets hard. 
Love is hard, especially when we're enduring suffering and hardship. Suffering has a tendency to kind of put a squeeze on everything. We're less patient when enduring suffering. We're less understanding of other people. We're less graceful. And usually we're less loving to others when we're enduring suffering. In 2014, my wife and I, we lived in, in Texas in Grand Prairie, and I was at home doing homework one day. I was in seminary at that point, and some guy came beating on our door, and I answered the door, and he says, your apartment building is on fire. You need to get out. This kind of gets your attention really quickly. And so I carried out what I could in two armfuls and got to watch our apartment pretty much burn, and we lost everything we had and had to move twice into two other apartments after that. And as we tried to get things back together and endure this difficult time for us and all the things that we lost, all of our possessions that I couldn't carry out in my arms, there was a ministry on campus of the school that I attended called Luke's Closet, where you could go on like a Wednesday from like noon to one o'clock. You could get appliances and clothes and other things. And there was one day shortly after our fire where I didn't have to work on a Wednesday because it was 40 degrees and raining, so I didn't get to Caddy, which was my job that day. So I figured I would drive into Dallas, go visit that clothing closet, see what I could get for our apartment. I think the stuff there they sold for a really small price and even gave a lot away for free. So I drove into Dallas in the middle of the day, which you don't want to do because traffic is terrible. I would always leave early when going to school. I'd leave at 6. I battle the rain and I battle the cold and I go down there and I show up and the ministry was closed that day. The one day, the one hour a week they're supposed to be open, they weren't open. So I walked over to the Student Services Center and there was a very nice young lady working there and I asked her, you know, it's not open. Is it going to open? I got there right at the beginning time. She said, oh, we decided not to open today for this week. And I won't repeat the things that I said, but they weren't very kind. They were very rude. Not something that a Christian person would probably normally say to another Christian person. But that reminds me and it reminds you, hopefully, that when we're going through tough times, we don't have a lot of grace and patience and understanding for other people's faults. And I think that's why Peter is reminding these believers that are going through suffering that they need to continue loving one another in the midst of suffering. Because it's hard when we're enduring suffering. We need to be intent to love others and determined to love others, especially when we're going through suffering and enduring suffering. So Peter's describing this ministry that the church is supposed to have among each other. We're supposed to have this whole and well mind, these warm hearts. And then he describes for them in verse 9 how they should have a welcoming home. He says in verse 9, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now as he talks about hospitality, it's good to remind ourselves what hospitality looked like in the first century. There were not a lot of hotels or inns around that time, and even the ones that did exist usually had bad reputations and were not safe. And Craig Keener, who teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary, has done research on first century hotels and inns, and he says they were known as much as being brothels as they were for being hotels. 
So you wanted to stay away, especially if you were a Christian person traveling. So hospitality was important as you traveled as a Christian believer. It was also seen as a privilege. If you were someone that had a, a nice enough home or enough money to welcome someone else, that was a privilege. And it would be an insult for someone to turn down that hospitality. And usually hospitality in the first century would include providing food for that person that stayed in your home, obviously lodging, a place to sleep, and then you would help them if they had needs for their, their next days of travel, whether you gave them some money or food or resources or connections as they moved on. And hospitality was also generational. You know, my dad stayed with your dad when he traveled here, and, you know, could I stay with you now that we're, you know, sons and I've never met you. It was a kind of a generational connections that they even had. And for Christians, hospitality was important for them because they wanted to stay away from any association with hotels or inns, as you might want to imagine, just to have that separation. Hospitality enabled for mission work to occur. John talks about that in his third letter about the importance of being hospitable to traveling evangelists and pastors and teachers. And hospitality was also important for people experiencing persecution if they had to, to move or leave where they were living because of the extreme persecution they might have experienced as believers. And hospitality is something that hopefully we do too as Americans in our culture. Maybe it's not as common, but it's tough sometimes because hospitality includes money and time and sometimes inconveniencing ourselves. But what Peter is telling them and telling us that in the middle of our suffering, we need to keep hosting others in our homes. We need to keep being hospitable and kind to our friends and believers as well as strangers. When suffering comes, it's easy for us to get inward focused and not think about others and try to take care of our needs and not focus on being hospitable to others. When we're tied on money, we don't want to share the little bit of food that we have with others. When we're tied on time, we don't want to share our time by entertaining other people. We might even feel inadequate for, for hospitality because we have a subscription to Better Homes and Garden and we see these amazing homes or other people we know that have big places. But the reality is we all should be hospitable with the resources that we have. There was a woman that wrote an article in Moody Magazine years ago. Her name was Karen Maines, and she describes the difference for us between entertainment and hospitality as we seek to be Christians, hosting and being kind to others. She writes, entertaining says, I want to impress you with my home, my clever decorating, and my gourmet cooking. Hospitality, seeking to minister, says, this home is a gift from my master. I use it as he desires. Hospitality aims to serve. She says, entertainment subtly declares, this home is mine, an expression of my personality. Look, please, and admire. Hospitality, however, whispers, what is mine is yours. Entertaining looks for a payment. The words, my, isn't she a remarkable hostess? With no thought of reward, hospitality takes pleasure in giving, doing, loving, and serving. Lastly, she writes, the model for entertaining is the slick women's magazines with their alluring pictures of food and rooms. 
The model for hospitality is the Word of God. Christ sanctifies our simple fare, and he makes it holy and useful. We all can be hospitable and do what Peter says, even if we have a small dining room table that also serves as the homeschool instruction spot, the craft table for all the kids, or the place that we pay our bills twice a month as well. We can use what we have to entertain others. When my wife and I were married, the first ever Bible study we had in our home was in our one-bedroom apartment on the second floor. We had about 12 people that would show up every week for Bible study. We got to know each other pretty good because there wasn't a lot of room for 12 chairs in a circle in our one little living room. But we did it. We offered what we had, and we had to tell people, there's stairs if you come. So be, you, know, you can come to study, but just be okay with stairs. Hospitality is something we're all called to do. Whether to strangers that we don't really know well when someone is broken down with a flat tire or friends and, and connections that we have from church that just need a warm meal and fellowship. So as Peter describes this ministry that we're all supposed to have in suffering, a whole and well mind, warm hearts, a welcoming home. And then in verse 9, he describes how we should have, in verses 10 and 11, working hands that serve. He says in verse 10 in the first half of 11, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. This is one of four passages in our New Testament that describes what we call as spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4 all describe spiritual gifts. So two twelves and two fours, if that ever helps you memorize it. And Peter's purpose here is not to describe a list of the different gifts, but instead to urge us and get us to deploy ourselves in the use of those gifts. And he says five important things about spiritual gifts in these two verses for us. One, they are individually given. There he begins, he says, as each one has received a spiritual gift. And if we read those other three passages about spiritual gifts, it's clear that each believer in Jesus Christ has a spiritual gift. Each person is given one when they place their faith in Jesus. The second thing that Peter describes for us is that these gifts are graciously offered to us. He says, as each one has received a special gift there, he calls them a special gift, which is the Greek noun charisma, which is connected to the Greek verb charizomai, which is connected to the other Greek noun charis. Both of those mean grace or to give graciously. Spiritual gifts are something that are provided to us. We don't earn them or get them because of our merit. Spiritual gifts are a generous act of our gracious God. The third thing Peter tells us about these spiritual gifts is that they are community-focused. He writes, employ the gift in serving one another. 
You might be given that spiritual gift, but that spiritual gift is not about you. It's not given to you to boost your ego. It's not given to you to, to help your self-esteem. That spiritual gift is an investment in you by God, and God expects a return from his investment by you serving others and using your benefit here to one another, as Peter says. So these spiritual gifts, they're individually given, graciously offered, community-focused, but they're also heavenly-enabled. Peter writes, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, you were given these. Back to that grace idea of these gifts. God's grace not only rescues us from salvation, but God's grace equips us to be stewards of the gifts he's given us. And a steward in the New Testament was someone that did not have a lot of money himself or herself, but a steward was responsible to dispense wealth on behalf of the owner of a home, is the idea of a New Testament steward. He or she didn't have money, but he or she dispensed it based on the master's will. Kind of like we understand how someone works as a payroll administrator in a company, right? He or she doesn't have the money herself, but her responsibility is to give it to the people that her bosses want it to be. Or if you're a contractor and there's a, an accounts payable person, the same idea. He or she dispenses money, but it's not necessarily his or hers. That's what it means for us to be stewards of God's gracious gift to us. He gives us those gifts, but they're for us to, to do and serve and give to others on behalf of our master. And lastly, they're supposed to be actively deployed, as Peter writes in verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Like I shared a little bit earlier, I don't think Peter here in verse 11 is giving a list of the different gifts, but instead he is trying to get us to use the gifts that we have. And he describes spiritual gifts in two different categories here. One are speaking gifts, and then one are serving gifts, as he uses those two words there, speaking and serves. For example, if we look at Paul's list of gifts there in Romans, speaking gifts would be teaching or exhorting. Serving gifts would be, obviously, service, leading, and mercy. And we see that same distinction by the, the apostles in Acts chapter 6, where there's some widows that weren't being fed and taken care of like they should have been. So the apostles appoint some deacons to take care of those needs. And the apostles say, we are called to be preaching and teaching and be praying as our ministry. We're going to put you in a serving ministry. It's the same kind of division there that Peter describes here. Some gifts are speaking gifts, some gifts are serving gifts. So he's urging us here, as we're supposed to have working hands, to use our spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts can be a little confusing at times because we hear different things about the four different lists that don't always quite match up perfectly like we would want them to. Some people say you have one primary gift and a couple secondary. Some people say one list describes the offices that people are in. One list describes the, 
The duties and the activities is another way to see that. Some people say those gifts that are different are like colors on a palette wheel and you can combine the gifts and you get different things like yellow and orange makes or green and yellow makes, purple maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not good with colors. I'm still trying to figure out English, but that's the idea is that the colors combine and that's why the gifts are sometimes uh, different. I knew I was gonna mess that up when I practiced that last night. But that's the idea here with these gifts. Peter is not trying to describe for us a description of the different gifts, but to get us to use them in describing two different categories. Grant Osborne tells us about this. But it's important for us to remember the context again. It's suffering that these people are going through. Peter is urging them to do things and serve one another, whatever their gift might be to help them get through suffering. Grant Osborne writes this. He says, The purpose of gifts is never to exalt the person, but rather to serve the community. So every Christian is given exactly the gifts God wants, and each is meant to use them for the benefit of the church and the glory of God. This leads to the interdependence of all believers. We need each other to be dispensers and also the recipients of the gifts God has given to the church through his people. The church is a family with each member supporting the others by using their gifts, not for status, but for the enrichment of others. Gifts do not confer status, they confer responsibility, says Grant Osborne. He's a graduate of what was called Fort Wayne Bible College. Now it's known as Bethel University, the, the school connected to the missionary church denomination. So we're supposed to use our gifts and the different members of the church use their gifts. There's a scene from Back to the Future, the first movie that I always like. Those are some of my favorite movies. And a scene where Marty McFly gets in the DeLorean and he, he starts driving rapidly. And he ends up being taken back to 1955 from 1985. And he can't figure out because where he's at looks like the town he used to be in, but it's very different. The JCPenney is now a, a cornfield. He goes into town and instead of Ronald Reagan being the, the president in 1985, Ronald Reagan, is, his name is up there at the top of the movie theater, is the actor. And one thing that causes Marty McFly to, to turn his head is when a car pulls into a gas station in 1955. And the car pulls in, and it goes ding, ding, and up spring four young men, and they run out to the car. And one guy starts putting gas in it, and one guy starts cleaning the windshield, one guy starts putting oil in the car. There's four of them working on it. And it's the, the full-service gas station is what Marty was confused by. He'd only seen self-serve, where you show up, you get what you need, and you leave. But the church should be like a full-service gas station, where we all come together, we all serve, we all actively do ministry. It's easy for a church to be a place where I come on Sundays, I get filled up with worship, I get filled up with teaching, and I'll be back next week when I'm empty again. But instead, it should be all of us working together, using those gifts to serve in different ways, whether it's putting gas in it or cleaning the windshield, putting air in the tires, like those guys in Back to the Future. So last, in the last half of verse 11, Peter ends, 
He started with a motivation for us. He described this ministry and he gives this mark, this intention that we're supposed to have to shoot for in all of this. It says, so that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The goal of all of this is that God ultimately gets the credit. Glory refers to the praise that God deserves, and dominion describes the power that he has. When we go through suffering, when we do these things that he tells us, when we make it through it, we ultimately give credit to God, and he gets the glory for sustaining us, either as a person or a body of believers. God gets the credit. That's why people like Elizabeth Elliot, when her husband is murdered as a missionary, she eventually goes back and she shares the gospel with those same people that murdered her husband. When we do things like that, God gets the credit, not us. Or for someone like Fanny Crosby in the, the 1800s, who was blind, but she still wrote 9,000 hymns for the Christian church. When we make it through suffering and endure suffering like that, God ultimately gets the credit, and God is glorified through our suffering when we do these things. Now, each of these areas that Peter has described for us are difficult to do. It's easy for us to feel tentative in those areas, especially when going through hardship or suffering. It's easy for us to, to come up with good human reasons not to do those things. But Peter gives us God's reasons that we should continue to do those things. It's easy for us to step back and step away, but Peter is telling us to step forward and to step into those activities. To step forward into sound judgment and clear thinking, as we think about the return of Christ in the future, to step into acts of love and compassion, even when we don't want to or think someone doesn't deserve it, to keep hosting others in our home, even when it's difficult, even when we're tied on money, or even if we don't feel like we're a good host, or to keep using our spiritual gifts, even when it's difficult, even when we're not sure we're good at it or we're not sure what they are, with those things, we're obedient to God's word and suffering. And when we do them, we realize that we all play a part in helping each other and serving each other in suffering. And the best part is that God ultimately gets the credit. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that enables us and helps us. Every single one of us knows someone going through a tough time. I pray that you, you're speaking to them today, that you are showing them what it might look like for them to help others in suffering. Or maybe for those of us that are going through hard times and enduring suffering, maybe you'll, you'll soften us and help us to accept that help from others that offer it, to accept those kind words of encouragement or those nice deeds that other people want to do for us. Because it's, it's us as a community that, that gets through life together. It's us as a community that follows you together. We rely on different people with different gifts and different service and, and different backgrounds that will help us. 
Please give us the courage to do these things as, as a local body or even to strangers that, that we don't really know well. Help us to follow you and to do what your scripture tells us as, as us or people we know endure suffering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll invite you to stand for the benediction and we'll be uh, dismissed. Let us go and worship you, Lord, in what we say, what we do, and how we think. Please let us saturate our city and our church community with worship of you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.